Well, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6 as we come back to our study of this great sermon on the mount. It would be difficult to quantify the cost through all of the millennia of time, the cost of empty rituals throughout all the history of humanity, stretching all the way back to the empty ritual of Cain when he offered up his grain to the Lord and the Lord we're told, had no regard for it. It meant nothing to him. Extending all the way back to then and bringing up to our own present time, you think about the billions and billions and billions of, of wasted hours and uh, useless energy and unnecessary pain that has all ended in emptiness uselessness and vanity in the name of religion. People performing religious duties, making all kinds of sacrifices, giving all kinds of gifts, lifting up all kinds of prayers, doing all these deeds that in the end amount to nothing and gain nothing for them or for anyone else. In economic images, you might say, it would be the equivalent of taking your cash and throwing it in the fire over and over again, thinking that somehow the momentary heat that comes from the burning of your bills is worth the sacrifice. That's the kind of emptiness and foolishness that people engage in whenever they participate in vain and empty rituals. It's the kind of useless activity that Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. It's the kind of thing that he's warning you about, he's critiquing here when it comes to the religious activity, particularly that was taking place in his own day among his own people in Israel. Activity that we might say generates a sudden flash of warmth but it has no lasting spiritual value. They are rituals that are motivated by the temporal praise of other people, praise that quickly fades, and at the end of the day leaves you as empty as you were at the beginning. Now Jesus focuses his warning about all this in chapter 6, which we've been looking at, and In verse 1, he introduces it with this warning, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. These acts of righteousness, these religious deeds, we might say, whose chief motivation is sort of the temporal praise or the temporal recognition of others, the, 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 the admiration of others, the, the uh, momentary exaltation of your status maybe among them, they bring no long-term benefit, he says. There is no real significant reward. There's certainly no spiritual reward, and there's no reward from heaven, from your Father who's in heaven. In fact, they, they might do, or we would say they probably do, more harm than they do good. First, because they blind you to your real need when you're performing these religious deeds 
with this kind of a motive, you momentarily feel good about yourself and forget your real needs before God. Because other people are praising you, you assume that God would praise you. Because other people are admiring you, you assume that God is admiring you. But what he's telling you is that that admiration from other people, that reward that you're getting from other people, is not in any way one and the same with what God thinks and the way that he would respond to how you're behaving. Not only that, these kinds of empty rituals actually become stumbling blocks at times to other people. They're not as fooled as you might think when it comes to your religious facade. And in fact, many see right through it. It's one of the reasons that so many cite in their sort of uh, response when asked why they don't participate in religion, why they aren't involved with the church. So many people talk about the emptiness of what they see in the ritualism of those who do participate in church. So this kind of activity that Jesus is talking about here, this kind of empty religion that he's, uh, he's confronting in the Sermon on the Mount uh, here in Matthew chapter 6, it is particularly dangerous. It's dangerous for you, it's dangerous for the church, it's dangerous for people around you. But we've been looking at it in some detail so that we can understand its dangers and hopefully avoid its pitfalls and correct the, the areas that need to be corrected that we can examine ourselves if, say, perhaps we have fallen into the rut of these kinds of empty rituals or maybe even to discover that that's really all you have, that your entire religion is nothing more than trying to impress other people. We've been looking at this little section and what I've called doing the right things for the wrong reasons. And as we noted a couple of weeks ago when we started to look at this, Jesus, uh, Jesus teaches this principle through a couple of illustrations. He speaks about how it works itself out in giving, how it works itself out in praying, and how it works itself out in fasting. We looked at the first of two of these. In verses 1 through 4, we looked at the issue of giving. In verses 5 through 8, the issue of praying. And today, we want to look at the third, which Jesus speaks about, which is the issue of fasting. And he addresses it in verses 16 to 18, which means, of course, that we are sort of jumping over verses 9 to 15 which deals with the Lord's Prayer we'll come back to that I assure you we'll in fact spend a couple of weeks looking at that in some detail but before we did that I wanted to try to help us keep the bigger picture in focus to keep our hearts and minds around uh, um, um, looking I should say uh, clearly at this issue of empty rituals as it relates to giving, as it relates to prayer, and as it relates to fasting. Because you'll hear as we read these verses that what Jesus has to say in verses 16 and 18 uh, is very similar, very parallel to what he's already said about prayer and about giving. This is what he says, beginning in verse 16, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, 
that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Now what you have here is basically the same approach that Jesus took with the issues of giving and prayer. He's setting a contrast between two different ways of engaging in this kind of religious activity. Two different approaches, two different reasons, you might say, two different motivations why people fast. One reason, very clearly, is to garner praise from others. The second is to focus your private prayers toward God. Now, we're going to look at these, and I actually want to sort of do it in reverse order, if you will permit me this morning, to begin by talking about the proper motivations that Jesus lays out here first, and then go on to talk about the perversions that the Pharisees had, uh, had brought to this particular issue. And so we'll begin, actually, in verse 17 and 18 by talking about a fasting which focuses private prayer. A fasting that focuses private prayer. And the reason we need to begin with this point or with these verses is because it really gets at the heart of what fasting is all about. And the reality is that many Christians these days have no idea what fasting is about. They, the, the, the typical Christian today really has very little experience, if any, and very little understanding about fasting. In fact, many would probably have to admit that most of what they know about fasting they've learned not from the Bible, but from some website or diet book. If they know anything about fasting, it probably has more to do with uh, stuff they've read about its health benefits rather than its spiritual benefits. Fasting is foreign to the typical modern Christian, except for perhaps those reasons or those occasional fads. But spiritual fasting, or fasting for spiritual reasons, we might say, is almost unknown in the early church. Excuse me, in the modern church. It's not like prayer. It's not like giving, which we all are familiar with. We engage in it in a frequent, on a frequent basis. But there are a lot of Christians who probably never in their life engaged in a spiritual fast. Now, there are reasons for that. And uh, perhaps the biggest of those is the fact that it's never commanded in Scripture. We have commands, of course, to give, and we have commands to pray, but we never have a command to fast, with one exception, that is in the Old Testament as it relates to the Day of Atonement. Leviticus 16, verse 29 says, it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves, or literally it is deny yourself. You shall deny yourself and you shall do no work. For on this day, atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you and you shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. So this was the only time anything like a fast was ever commanded anywhere in Scripture and it was associated with Yom Kippur, with the Day of Atonement. But of course, with the death of Christ on the cross, 
He made atonement for the sins of all those who believe in him for all time. And so, therefore, the day of atonement became obsolete, just like the sacrificial system, the whole, the whole enterprise of sacrifices within the temple, all of that became obsolete with the death of Christ on the cross. And along with it, so did the command for fasting. So once you get into the New Testament, the reality is fasting is not spoken of very often. Perhaps the most prominent place you see it is in the wilderness temptation of Jesus when the Holy Spirit, you remember, drove him into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights when he didn't eat anything, we're told. And Satan comes along at the end of that and tempts him to turn stones into bread because he was so hungry. But again, there was no command for the rest of us that grew out of that. It was something individual that Jesus did. It was, in fact, something the Holy Spirit compelled him to do in order to uniquely prepare him for ministry. But interestingly, once the ministry of Jesus began, he apparently never fasted again. Throughout the remaining three or three and a half years of his ministry, apparently he didn't fast at all. Matthew eleven eighteen points out the hip, uh, or Jesus points out the hypocrisy of his critics because as he says John came neither eating nor drinking that is to say John regularly fasted as an old testament saint and they say Jesus says they say he has a demon but the son of man came eating and drinking and they say look at him a glutton and a drunkard So in other words, they recognized that Jesus was not some austere personality. He wasn't someone who was prone to these kinds of of, uh, severe spiritual disciplines like fasting. He was known rather as someone who enjoyed eating and drinking, whether that is overblown or not. In fact, in Matthew 9, 14, we read, that disciples of John came to Jesus saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So in other words, Jesus didn't lead his disciples to fast. They didn't fast. He didn't fast. And they said this particularly because right there in Matthew 9, Jesus had just participated in this huge feast in Matthew's house. Once Jesus had called him to be a disciple, Matthew invited him over and he threw this massive, massive feast. And these disciples were told, began to wonder why Jesus was so sort of prone to enjoy these large feasts. In fact, Mark tells us that when they came to him at this point, they were in the middle of a fast. And they began to wonder why Jesus didn't participate in these kinds of ritual fastings and why he wasn't following their tradition. Jesus' answer gives us a lot of insight into fasting. He says in the next verse, Matthew nine fifteen, he said to them, can the wedding guest mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. So Jesus draws an important connection for them and for us between mourning and fasting. 
between what we might say is sorrow or anguish or grief and fasting. And his answer is basically this, that it's appropriate to fast if you are in some sort of state of mourning. It's appropriate to fast if you're in some sort of situation like the loss of a friend or the loss of a bridegroom or having to have some sort of difficult departure. All that would be appropriate. It would be understandable if you fasted during those times. But his impl- the implication of what he's saying is if you're not in one of those times, If you aren't experiencing one of those losses, if you aren't going through that kind of mourning, then it makes no sense to be fasting. In other words, fasting was not just simply a regular part of Jesus' life for no reason at all. But if you're completely... uh, or if you are taken up, I should say, with joy, if you're experiencing peace, if you're filled with thankfulness, or if you're in the days, as he says here in the illustration, if you're in the days of preparation for a wedding, when the bridegroom is with you, when you're in times of abundance, and when you're in times of, of, uh, of contentment, and all of that, there's no need. It doesn't have to be a wedding. You could substitute all kinds of events, The point is simple. Fasting is a function of mourning. Fasting is a function of grief. It's an expression of a heart in anguish. And in many ways, this is a natural reaction. It's a spontaneous reaction. You really don't even have to command it because it's simply what your, uh, what your body does. It's the way the body wants to respond when it's in these deeply emotional times, these times of grief and anguish. You might have experienced that at some point. It's very common, particularly if you lose a loved one. Your body just simply does not want to eat. You lose your appetite. You lose your desire. It can be sort of surreal at times. I mean, you, you, might, be, you might have lost a, a very precious loved one, maybe even lost your spouse. And right at that time, you know, people are flooding your front door with meals and food and they're filling your counter up with all this stuff. And all your body is telling you right now is, I don't want to eat. I have no desire. I mean, I appreciate those gifts. I, it looks great. I'm sure it's your best recipe, but I have no desire I would have to force myself to be able to eat during that time. Very common. It's as if all of that emotion directly affects your digestive tract. When you feel something deeply like that, you just lose all appetite. Same thing might happen with other emotions. You might be facing a difficult situation and having been overcome with fear, you can't think about eating. Or you might be facing a difficult decision and you're gripped with anxiety. You don't know what to do. It's all you can think about. And you lose your appetite. Lots of times you are in those situations. It could be that you've been exposed Some sin has been brought to your attention and you are overcome with grief and shame. 
And the last thing you want at that point is anything to eat or drink. You're just overcome with emotion. And so Jesus is saying to the disciples of John the Baptist that it's appropriate. If you're experiencing a time of grief, it would be appropriate for you to fast. But if you're not experiencing a time of grief, if you're experiencing a time of joy, then fasting is not called for. In fact, fasting would be inappropriate. And the Lord's desire is that you take during those times of grief, those times of anxiety, those times of anguish, those times of shame, whatever it might be, the Lord's desire is that whenever you are gripped so deeply with those sort of emotions, that when you are, are wrestling with that and it affects you to such a deep level that you lose your appetite, you lose your desire, The Lord's desire during those times is not that you fight against that and somehow find a way to still eat, but that you allow the natural process to play itself out. You allow it to drive you to the Lord in a more and more intense way, and that is fasting. You allow those emotions which are taking control of your mind and taking food, if you will, out of your sort of uh, um, perspective, and you allow those emotions to drive your mind and heart toward the Lord. Now, you can see this happening in a number of places where fasting is spoken about in the Scripture. For example, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me over to 2 Samuel 2 Samuel chapter 12. And here you have the familiar story of the prophet Nathan having come and rebuked David for his adulterous affair with Bathsheba and even his participation with the death of her husband Uriah when he placed him at the head of the army and had the soldiers draw back so that he was killed. And Nathan came and confronted him, and he told him, not only did God see and know what had taken place, but that the child who would be born from this adulterous affair was going to die. And then we read in verse 15, after Nathan went back to his house, the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat with them. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How can we say to him that the child is dead? He he may do to himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth, and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set some food before him and he ate. 
And his servants said to him, What is this thing that you've done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now that he's dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. David was grieving. He was grieving over the sickness of the child. He was grieving over the consequences of his sin, the recognition of everything that he had brought on himself, on Bathsheba, on the child, and in the nation. And all this sort of took control of him. It caused him to lose his appetite, to stop eating, to intensify his prayer, to lay himself out on the floor, and to pray diligently day and night to the Lord. We don't know exactly what he prayed for during that seven-day fast, but whatever it was, it allowed him to focus his heart and mind completely on the Lord, and amazingly, once the child did finally pass, David was able to find comfort in the very same Lord who had afflicted him. He was able to find assurance that really came out of this intense time of prayer. You see another example in the story of Ahab over in 1 Kings chapter 21, the story of Ahab. You remember that he was a wicked king and among his evil deeds was his involvement with the murder of a righteous man named Naboth because Naboth had a vineyard and Ahab wanted the vineyard. And Ahab's wife saw him sulking over the fact that he couldn't get his greedy hands on it. His wife, Jezebel, she learned about his desire and she encouraged him to take it by force, but he refused to do that. So she actually went out, she stirred up a group of rabble rousers in the town where Naboth lived. And these worthless men went out and stirred up false rumors against Naboth, eventually to the point where the townspeople chose to stone Naboth to death. At that point, Ahaz went in and seized the property of Naboth, took his vineyard, and had it for his own. We see in 1 Kings 21, verse 17, and the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall the dogs lick your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut you off from, Ahab, cut you off from Ahab every male, bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which 
you have provoked me and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, the Lord said, the dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. There was none, we're told in verse 25, there was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab whom Jezebel his wife incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. Verse 27, and when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he's humbled himself before me, I will not bring on him the disaster in his days, but in his his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon his house. So here Ahab's grief over realizing what he's done stirs him with such intense emotion and shame that he rips his clothes, dresses himself in sackcloth and gives himself over to fasting. He had no appetite whatsoever to to partake of certainly Naboth's vineyard or anything in it or anything at all. He responds with this sort of intense season of prayer that we're told then the Lord hears and recognizes and then shows his mercy to Ahab. And there are all kinds of examples like this in the Old Testament. And even when you get to the New Testament, you see examples of fasting during times, you might say, of intense emotion, although not in the same way that you have in the Old Testament You have, for example, in Acts 13, verses 1 to 3, you have this huge decision that came upon the church at Antioch. Acts 13, you remember, Paul and Barnabas, along with a number of other people, were ministering in the church of Antioch. And we're told there in verse 1 that there were in this church prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them out. Now I'm sure that this was not an easy decision. This was a huge thing. Sending out Perhaps their two most gifted servants, their two most gifted teachers, they had to wrestle through, I'm sure, not only the potential opportunities and benefits of sending them out on mission, but they had to wrestle through the potential effects that it would have on their own congregation when these leaders departed, when they were gone. It wouldn't have been an easy thing. And so we read that they spent time fasting and praying. Over in Acts 14, verse 21, we read similar kind of um, activity. It says, when, uh, when they, that is Paul and Barnabas, had preached the gospel to that city, 
and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations you must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Now it's easy to read over that in sort of a nonchalant way without really taking stock of the weight of what Paul must have felt. I mean, we know even here in our own context how, how challenging it is when we come to the issue of leadership. Every year we pray and we wrestle over this decision about whether or not the Lord is raising up elders among us. And we get to sort of watch the process develop. We get to sort of guard and, and guide the process along its way. We spend sometimes years in training and developing those elders to make sure that they're ready. Paul didn't have that luxury. These were brand new churches. These were sort of infantile churches. They weren't necessarily built up to the point that they needed to be. Not only that, Paul says that they are headed toward times of tribulation And he's having to appoint leaders for them in every city and then leave them behind, hoping, praying, hoping that somehow that those leaders will turn out to be worthy of the calling to which they've been called and they'll guide the churches faithfully. Paul says over in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that these kinds of decisions weighed on him. They were more burdensome to him than some of the lashes on his back. Daily concern, he says, for all the churches. He labored over this and he fasted with a burden on his heart that somehow, some way, the Lord would guide him into the right decision on all of these appointed leaders. Even Jesus' own fast, 40 days and 40 nights out in the wilderness, was in some sense, at least in part, it was a way of preparing him for the launch of his public ministry. You'll see this, people fasting, not only in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament, you'll see them fasting whenever they are approaching some major and consequential decision, or whenever they're in, uh, uh, preparing to embark on some major ministry. They will go through a season of fasting. And it's not only that, but there were times also of intense repentance in Acts 9.9, the story of Paul's uh, conversion on the road to Damascus. We read, Saul rose after the Lord had struck him to the ground and blinded him with a light. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. And so they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days... He was without sight and neither ate nor drank. In verse 11, the Lord said to a disciple named Ananias, he said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. So here's, here's Saul who became, of course, the apostle Paul. He was breathing out threats against Christians. He was hunting them down and killing them. 
And the Lord confronts him on the road to Damascus about all of his rebellion and his sin against the Lord. And whenever he is confronted like that, he comes to this realization. And I'm sure for three solid days, he did nothing but weep over the consequences of everything that he had done against the Lord and against his church. And we're told for three days and three nights he didn't eat anything, and for three days and three nights he was just praying. All of these are just the natural reaction of the heart and the mind and the soul to the anguish or the stress or the sorrow or the grief or the repentance or whatever it might be. It's, it, it naturally affects your digestive tract and you simply do not feel like eating and so you fast. And in all these cases, the people who allowed the stress They allowed the anxiety, they allowed the grief to not drive them into despair, but to drive them actually to the Lord. They gave up eating, they gave up drinking because they were so stirred inside that they just wanted to seek the Lord. That's the design of fasting. It's intended to, to focus your private prayer. And so you can understand why fasting is not commanded because you can't always know when those seasons of grief are going to strike you. You don't always know when the tragedies are going to come. You don't always know when the big decisions are going to be there for you to face down. The seasons when sin is burdening your heart are not the same for every person. And when those seasons do strike... God has designed your body to respond, you might say, intestinally to that situation. And God desires that you take those seasons away from regular eating, away from regular pleasures or whatever it might be, and that you take those burdens in prayer to Him. And this is what Jesus says in verse 17 of Luke, uh, excuse me, Matthew chapter 6. When you fast... Anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others but by your Father who's in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. In other words, fasting is not designed, something that's designed to generate public sympathy or certainly public praise. In fact, Jesus suggests that you're not to do anything to draw attention to all of the grief and the anguish that you might be experiencing. You are, in fact, to wash your face, to anoint your head, which was the kind of cosmetic treatment in those days. Uh, They would rub oil on their face and their skin so they wouldn't become dry and chapped in the harsh sun of the Middle East. And the point is that fasting is not something that's designed to to generate public attention or public sympathy. A lot of times that's our instinct. A lot of people, whenever they get into a point of stress or a point of grief, their reflex is almost to reach out to someone else, to, to look for some shoulder to cry on, to find some sort of, some sort of uh, movement of, of, uh, of despair along with you rather than letting your first steps be toward God. 
But Jesus says this really ought to be some, it ought to be a season when you're turning to God in private. It's all about focusing your heart and mind on God in private. In fact, one of the struggles you may know if you fast, one of the struggles sometimes is when you are fasting, people around you are still going about their regular life. You might have scheduled a meal with someone or there might be some event going on with your family, some get-together where you're supposed to or expected to be involved. It's not necessarily wrong to participate in those things during those events. In fact, you might be doing it out of a sense of wanting to serve the other person. The idea is not to just see how hungry you can make yourself when you're going through a fast. The idea is that you don't want to eat. You just want to take your burdens to the Lord. You just want to spend as much time with Him as you can, and you want to do it privately. And when you do that, Jesus promises, God will see, and He will respond. He will reward. It might be an answer like Ahab received where the Lord shows His mercy to you, when you've messed things up and you've ruined some situation and you've wrecked some relationship or you've wrecked your own life and you're grieving and you're crying out to the Lord and He shows you mercy like He showed Ahab. Or it might be like David where your prayers aren't answered and he lost his child But somehow he found a comfort, a peace, we might say, that passes all understanding through that season of prayer. Those seven days prepared his heart and mind for whatever the Lord had sent him, even the death of his child. But the promise from Jesus is the Lord will hear your prayers and he will respond in his own way and with blessing. Now all of that is the way fasting is supposed to work. But the problem is that the Pharisees and many others we might say throughout history have perverted fasting into something else. Which brings us to our second point, the second motive that Jesus deals with here, which is fasting in order to fetch public praise or or we might say fasting to foster your own public uh, uh, reputation and this is one of the problems of the pharisees that their fasting was not motivated out of some sincere internal grief and anguish over their own sin or about any other situation it was really all about their own public reputation To begin with, they had made it into some sort of mechanical thing that that even though fasting was never commanded, they tried to come up with this sort of schedule, this sort of regular calendar when they would fast all the time. 
Even in the one instance you remember with the Day of Atonement when, when fasting was, uh, was prescribed for all of Israel, even in that one instant, it was not supposed to be some empty ritual. It was not supposed to be some sort of meaningless exercise. It was supposed to be in association with the confession of your sins. That's what Israel was supposed to do on the Day of Atonement. They were supposed to mourn. They were supposed to grieve over their sin. They were supposed to feel the weight of their sin more on that day than any other day as they made that offering of atonement and they were supposed to confess. And the prescription for fasting was because in a truly regenerated or a truly spiritual Israel, they would have felt the weight of their separation from God. But aside from that one instance, the Old Testament didn't prescribe regular fasts because those kinds of emotions strike people at different times and in different ways. It's not something you can put on the calendar. You can't just sort of say to your friend, you know, I think... um, A week from next Thursday, I'm going to be so sad I'm going to lose my appetite. It just doesn't happen that way. Those those things are not stuff that you can sort of mechanically schedule. And the Pharisees and other Jews who were following them were trying to do this. They were turning it into some sort of mechanical routine. They wanted to... They wanted to appear to other people as if they were feeling this kind of intense burden about sin, even though they were not really feeling it. And so Jesus says in verse 16, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fast may be seen by others. They would intentionally look gloomy they would actually pretend to feel anguish even though they didn't really feel that way they would the the scripture says disfigure their faces which might be a reference to them smearing ash on their face this is one of the practices that sometimes people did in the ancient world they would pour ashes over their head as if there was a kind of a self-cursing going on until it evolved to the point where the ash would mix together with the sweat in your skin and it would just be smeared all over you and eventually it became a tradition that rather than just pouring the ashes over your head, you would just take some moisture and dip dip your fingers into the ash and smear that stuff across your forehead. Someone told me, couple weeks ago I think it was Tim Tim Brown was telling me he was visiting Egypt and one morning noticing all the men had this sort of red mark on their forehead and he didn't know what it was Uh, they all seemed to have it he thought it might be some sort of special occasion and uh, his friend told him well no it's not actually a special occasion it's supposed to be the rug marks from the morning prayers at 5 a.m. But none of them really pray. They actually carry sandpaper around in their pocket and they rub their forehead before they go out in the day so the people think they pray. Same concept. 
They wanted some sort of external mark that would prove their spirituality. They want to put on a show, just like people do in other ways when they sing or when they, when, they, when they try to project some sort of false emotion, when they have some sort of false humility that they're projecting and, and wanting to draw attention to, those outward expressions. Jesus was condemning all of this sort of pretended mourning and pretended brokenness. Pretending to be burdened, deeply concerned about sin. It was just a show. This was, by the way, one of the issues that Isaiah dealt with in his own day. He pictured a time in Israel's history when they, they themselves would not take sin seriously, when they would be uh, putting on this fast. And he says to them in Isaiah 58, the fast that I'm concerned with, God says, is not the refraining from eating and drinking. The fast that I'm concerned with is that you stop hating one another, despising one another, cursing one another, and that you stop ignoring the hungry and failing to bring uh, justice to the needy. In other words, that they would pretend to be concerned about all of this sort of evil around them when in fact they're not lifting a finger to do anything about it. Same sort of thing is being confronted by Christ here. By the time you reach the first century, all of the superficial hypocritical fasting had become a routine. It wasn't driven by inward feelings at all. It was mechanical. Luke 18 verse 12, the Pharisee, you remember, stood in the temple and he He sort of boasted. He says, I fast twice a week, which is what the Pharisees did. They would fast on Monday and on Thursday because these were the days that traditionally they believed Moses had gone up the mountain to get the Ten Commandments and had come back down the mountain. But all of it was just outward, just some mechanical exercise. Nothing was going on in the inside. Although the Pharisees wanted you to think that it was. They wanted you to believe that they were that concerned. All this false humility is useless though. Wasted effort. Wasted pain. Wasted self-denial. Wasted, wasted hours. Jesus says, when you do all this with this kind of motive, you have received your reward. You received your reward. The momentary warmth that you might have felt in the flash of recognition that you might have gotten from someone else. A wasted exchange. It might have given you a temporary good feeling, but it does nothing to solve your spiritual problems. And it can do nothing to soothe the grieving, fearful, doubtful, guilty feelings you have in your soul. 
a temporary admiration that you might believe you're getting from other people fades as quickly as the sun over the horizon at the end of a day. And the gravitational pull in the hearts of every human being drifts them back towards their own self-centered thoughts. And they're not thinking of you at all. They've quickly forgotten your little show. And you're, li- you're left just as empty as you were at the beginning. You might have afflicted yourself with starvation. You might have made some magnanimous sacrifice. But at the end of the day, you haven't really advanced yourself spiritually. You certainly haven't moved the heart of God to advance your cause or to relieve your concerns or whatever it might be. You've got your reward. It was momentary and now it's gone. And the real danger of all of this, whether fasting or praying or giving or whatever it is, the real danger is that it's so easy to do all of these things in the name of religion and actually miss God. Because your secret motive isn't for God at all. It is to be seen by other people and your focus is on them, not your spiritual needs when the reality is you do have spiritual needs and they will never be met by any other human being they'll never be met by your spouse they'll never be met by your parents or by your children or by your friends they'll never be met by the other people you know at church they'll never be met by all the praise and recognition that you could ever garner from any person. They'll only ever be met as you come face to face with your God and you cry out to Him for mercy and He hears you in your cry and in your situation. And if you need forgiveness, He forgives your sins. And if you need cleansing, He cleanses you. And if you need security, He is a shield and a fortress. And if you need assurance, He's a comforter. But He only responds to those who come to Him sincerely in secret. And in secret, your God will meet you and He will answer you. Well, let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer and a song. If you're here this morning and the Lord is speaking to you and you know that all you've ever done in the name of religion is for other people and if you want to know this God, if you want to meet this God this morning, we encourage you to come see us. We have a visitor reception at the end here. You can go down the hallway to the right. We'll be in a room. We'll be there waiting. We'd love to be able to hear how the Lord is working in your heart, be able to share with you from God's word how you can have your sins forgiven, how you can know the Savior, how you can have Him answering when you cry to Him and giving you what you need spiritually in your heart and life. Father, we're grateful for this time, thankful for this word. We do need to hear it and understand it. We need to be people who feel 
intensely the grief that comes with sin. We need to be people who let our anxieties drive us to you. We need to allow these processes to work themselves out. And so when appropriate, we need to fast and seek your face. Help us to do that, Lord. And when we do that, not to do it for the praise and the recognition of others, but to do it in secret to our God. And you, O Lord, have promised, and we believe you will hear us. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.